Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And the jury could see his hand trembling the entire time. For, for five days, they were sit, sitting there witnessing. The defense may have over under, underestimated that and just viewed this as a amputated tip of finger case and not a loss of use of hand kick, dominant hand case to a, to a really great guy. Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm feeling a little underdressed, Steve, because both you, both you and our guests look very nice today. And well, uh, I, I'm wearing my typical work from home attire. So, And except that you're at the office. I can so tell I'm by the, the way office. you're looking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, we were just commenting. I mean, Dan uh, just looks great and, and not just that he's a, a good looking man, uh, but the, he uh, his camera is such high quality that uh, we were talking about that. And, and it really does bring home how important being heard and being seen and, and looking good on uh, in our in today's climate with uh, with Zoom and uh, in all the ways we're doing hearings and, and everything else uh, is just so important now. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I spend so much time on Zoom that I figure it's worth the investment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 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 Yeah. And for our listeners who can't see, he does. He, he looks better than than Steve and me. His <laughs> set, his whole setup is good. And you've already heard from him. But let's go ahead and tell you who we're talking to. Um, we're talking to Dan Hessel from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've listened to a lot of the speakers that I admire very much. I've learned a lot. So to be a guest on your podcast, is really an honor. Well, thank you. And we're so lucky to have you. And this is a case, there's so much we could talk about in this case that it's going to be a challenge to hit everything. But um, before we dig into it, let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. Dan is a partner at Galco Hessel, and you can look him up and pay attention to this because it's spelled differently than it sounds. Um, you can look him up at galcohessel.com. That's G-O-L-K-O-W. H-E-S-S-E-L dot com. And Dan is kind of a big deal. Um, he has a ton of experience in personal injury and subrogation law. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, subrogation today. Um, Dan's got multiple seven and eight figure verdicts um, with uh, and settlements with him serving as lead counsel. He's a repeat super lawyer in Pennsylvania for Seven years running is the last thing I saw, but it could be longer depending on how uh, updated your website is. Um, Rising star multiple years before that. He's a member of the Million Dollar Advocates Forum, which is as impressive as it sounds. And one of the very cool things about Dan that I saw in looking him up was that some of his positive reviews come from jurors who saw yeah. him in trial. <laughs> no, I, I actually wrote it down because I was like, if I could get a juror to say this about me, I, I would definitely put it on my website. But he said, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but, it, but when he was talking about Dan, he said, here is a lawyer that kicked ass. If you need to sue someone, use these guys. I mean, I mean I, to get to get that kind of endorsement from a juror who saw you in trial, that's that's pretty priceless. Um, so obviously a very terrific trial lawyer. Um, Dan went to college in New Jersey, undergrad and William Mary for law school, William and Mary for law school. And sounds like at both those places, he was already getting into the experience, the mock trial sort of moot court experience. So he was basically lawyering before he was officially a lawyer. Um, and it shows from his skills. So Dan, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate those, those kind words. 
I, I need to mention something else that I saw in Dan's bio that uh, I think Dan is the first uh, person that we've ever had on the show who is a member of Mensa. Yeah, how did somehow I miss that? I, yeah, I, I squeaked by their standards somehow. <laughs> right. I'm not sure how it happened. I'm sure many of your guests, though, are, are uh, well qualified for that. Group. I don't know how I missed that, but I'm glad I didn't know because I, I might have been too in intimidated to uh, to uh, prep for the case. But I am intimidated now, and I'm going to talk about the case that we're talking about. And um, this this leaves me um, even more of an excuse to leave the description of some of the specifics to Dan, because um, I'm going to talk about what uh, what I still struggled with after doing some research on my own. But I know Dan will be able to explain it to us. Um, but before I get into that, let me talk about the case. The case is uh, called Juan Reyes versus Cincinnati Incorporated. And one of the things I learned, one of the many things I learned in preparing to talk about this case, Steve, was that I don't know how to spell Cincinnati. <laughs> I have really, I really pride myself on being like a human spell checker, but it turns out I cannot spell Cincinnati. Well, as I don't know if, if everybody knows this, but I was born in Ohio in Dayton and I was a big Cincinnati Reds fan uh, growing up. I, I even met Johnny Bench when I was a kid. So uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. But uh, so I do know how to spell Cincinnati. You do know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I really struggled with it. Um, and I'm, sh I'm sure I'll, after, well, Dan's Mensa. So I'm sure he could, <laughs> right. I'm sure he was yeah. born knowing how to spell it. Um, but anyway, so let's talk about this case. This um, this injury occurred in 2013. Um, Juan Reyes was 42, 42 years old at the time. And um, he was working for a company that is called Aggregates Equipment. And he was using a hydraulic shear, which Dan described as like a big pair of scissors, sort of, that that's basically used to cover like big sheets of like plate metal and, and things like that. I looked up a bunch of videos on YouTube. Um, some of them were not in English to kind of see how they worked. And that's helpful for listeners who, um, if you're listening in this case, you don't know what hydraulic shears are. Um, you can look them up helped me a little bit picture this, but I'm still going to make Dan kind of describe how this stuff works. Um, but anyway, so Mr. Reyes is, was using the hydraulic shear. Um, he, his hand in using it, his hand basically, um, got crushed. He suffered a severe hand injury, permanent nerve damage, tremors resulting from that partial amputation of what was described in the complaint as his long finger, is that, that yeah. is that his middle finger? It, it, it is, is, yes. Well, okay. yeah. Reports call it the, the long finger, but it's okay. the middle finger, yeah. I had never heard that. I actually, so then I Googled like, because like, you know, sometimes people's pointer fingers and middle fingers are like pretty close. Anyway, so then I Googled that, found a lot of other weird pictures <laughs> yeah. and stuff. Um, Sounds I like you went down a rabbit hole. I did. I accidentally <laughs> Googled long fingernails the first time. Right. That was a mistake. Um Anyway, lots of lots of tangents in, in my uh, case summary right now. So let me let me focus in on uh, what happened. So I'm going to skip over some stuff that we'll go back into later. But um, Dan took the case to trial in November 2016 in Philadelphia County, Pennsylvania, and um, he had a few um, arguments uh, that he proved to the jury, um, and those had to deal with that the hydraulic shears. Um, number one, didn't have a roll guard on them, um, on it. And that number two, even if it had, the way the machinery was designed was defective. Um, number three, that the manufacturer of the shears, Cincinnati, 
uh, Incorporated had failed to warn about the safety hazards that were present here that caused Mr. Reyes's injuries. And number four, a technician had actually come out that worked for Cincinnati uh, Incorporated and had inspected the hydraulic shear and still hadn't um, flagged these safety problems. Now, before I stop talking, you might be thinking, okay, so this sounds like kind of a slam dunk case. Well, Dan overcame a lot of problems or a lot of complications, should we say, in the case that we'll talk about, including the fact that this equipment was was originally sold in 1983. So it was almost 30 years old when Mr. Reyes was injured. Um, Mr. Reyes was at work. Uh, Mr. Reyes was, um, you know, we talk about a lot about how your, your client usually gets blamed. Mr. Reyes had a lower education, about a fifth grade education. Um, there was at least evidence to deal with regarding post-sale modifications to the equipment. And um, the damages, depending on your perspective, the actual you know, medical expenses and lost wages um, weren't significantly high. But despite all of those hurdles, um, Dan prevailed at trial for his client and got a verdict of $15 million. And the jury found that Dan prevailed on all of his, his theories against the defendants, which I thought was really impressive. Um, and I'm going to stop talking about it now. But Dan, before we get into all the fun stuff that's going on in this case, I was hoping we could start with you doing a better description uh, than I did, which was no description of kind of how how the hydraulic shears work and, and what the rule guard does and how Mr. Reyes was injured. Sure. Yeah. So the hydraulic shear is a huge piece of machinery. It originally cost $120,000. It has a mouth that's about 12 feet wide so that you can feed ginormous pieces of steel into this machine up to three quarters of an inch thick. And you feed it through this opening. And then when you're ready to make the cut on the line, you press a foot pedal. And when you press the foot pedal, the knife comes down and shears off that piece of metal where the, the line is. Now, an instant before that knife comes down, clamps come down. And that's to hold the steel in place because otherwise the force of that knife would cause the back end of that piece of metal to go flying up and severely injure the operator. So there are clamps, you can't even see them really because they're kind of up where it's not visible, but it's right where the operator will put his hands. So you slide this piece of steel into the machine. You think your hands are safe because they're nowhere near the knife. The knife is far enough back, you can't reach it. And then you press the foot pedal. And if you, if you don't know any better, these clamps are gonna come down with tons of force and crush your hands. And, and that's what happened in, in this case to Mr. Reyes. Uh, the, the big issue, the crux of this whole case came down to whether when the manufacturer, Cincinnati, sold the shear in 1983, whether it had an adequate guard on the front of it where the operator's hands are. It, originally, it had a guard of some sort, but by all accounts, it was defective. Even Cincinnati agreed that their original guard in this day and age, and even at the time in 1983, was, was totally inadequate. They didn't even call it a guard. They called it an awareness barrier because it didn't guard anything. Subsequently to originally selling this machine, they realized that they had a problem. So they added an enhancement onto this guard. And that's what you call the roll bars or the roll guards. And those, those roll bars, they would prevent the operator's hands from getting into this area of danger. So the whole case boiled down to, was this machine sold before 
or after they enhance the guards. If it was sold before, we win. If it was sold after, we have to go to our backup theories, which weren't terrible, but it wasn't as simple and convincing as our primary theory. Describe something to me. And when you were describing the incident, I was having a hard time understanding. And and I did go on and I watched several videos of the um, actually of the Cincinnati industrial hydraulic shear. Um, But you were you were saying that as he was pushing his hand in that there was sort of a a, sound like there was some shadowing or there was a light that made it so he couldn't really tell where the line was to put his hand. And then as the hold down came on, came down, that's what actually crushed his hand. But what exactly happened there with the shadowing and why he couldn't see that? Yeah. So the way the machine is designed, it's, it's pretty clever. There's a light up underneath the top of the machine and it shines down and then it casts a very crisp shadow line right where the shear is going to come down so that the operator can tell where the cut is going to be. So before you put the piece of metal into the machine, you take chalk or something and you, and you draw a line on where you want it cut after you do your measurement. And then you just slowly slide that piece of metal into the machine until it lines up with that shadow line. But Mr. Rice was five foot three and he had to really kind of lean in to the machine to be able to see the shadow line. And that's why his hands were underneath those clamp areas. And he, he also wasn't trained on this machine. This was right. not his job. His, his job was to sweep the floors. And someone said, hey, Mr. Reyes, do me a favor and cut this piece of metal. It was, just, it was I think, 12 inches long by three inches wide. They just wanted it for some small fabrication pur- purpose. So he's not going to say no. So he said, yeah. And, he, and that's kind of one of the reasons why this happened. Yeah, I think you pointed out that he had only even seen it used five or six times before. And I think it actually used it once or twice before this. But the but, you know, the other part of it that I, I think made this case difficult from your standpoint was, you know, not only was there this question about whether or not the guard was on and, and you know, and it was such an old machine, but it sounded like there was pretty clear evidence that the foot pedal had been altered or modified. And that, so it's basically somebody had removed a guard around the foot pedal so that when he was trying to place this in, probably because of his height, he accidentally hit that foot pedal as he was placing it in and that caused it to come down on his hand, right? Yeah, that, that was a big problem we were concerned about. There is a protective cover on these foot pedals, the way they're designed to prevent somebody from accidentally stepping on it. You have to foot, put your foot into this little case and then kick the lid up and then press the pedal down. So it requires an extra step to activate the shear. So what happens, and this is true with a lot of products, is the employer or the coworkers or whoever had this product originally, they modified that foot pedal and they bent up the safety feature, the cover, so that you no longer have to kick anything up. You can just step right down on the pedal makes it a lot easier to use, but it's a loss, also a lot more dangerous. And, you know, to Mr. Reyes' credit, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to say it wasn't an accident, that he was intending to cut the material at the time. He just didn't realize his hands were in place. If he had said that, that would have removed the foot pedal completely from the case. But to his credit, he maintained from the start and throughout that he accidentally stepped down on the pedal, which created a problem for us from a product alteration standpoint but it enhanced his credibility greatly in a case that was filled with credibility issues amongst the defense witnesses. 
Yeah. And I, I cannot wait to talk about that. Um, and, and what it sounded like changes in testimony. Um, there's one kind of background thing I want to, I want to touch on before we go there, which is, you know, so for a lot of our listeners are thinking, okay, workplace injury, this is going to be a worker's compensation case. Um, but we know that, that, Obviously, this, that wasn't, that's not the context we're dealing with. We're dealing with the product manufacturer. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about just background for listeners who may not know about the subrogation context. And then also under Pennsylvania law, because I think in Georgia, you'd still have the potential to, to potentially allocate fault to the employer in a case like this. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about um, whether you can do that in Pennsylvania or how how that works as well. In Pennsylvania, we have very favorable laws from a tort standpoint. The employer cannot be on the verdict sheet and the jury is not entitled to allocate any fault to them. I deal, I deal almost entirely with workplace accident cases, the product liability cases. And in almost every case, the employer is at least partially at fault. They remove a guard or they don't train or there's some other blame on the employer. And I've, I've done enough cases, I've had enough trials, I've done enough focus groups to realize that can be a real problem. Mm. And the way that we address that, the way we've learned to address that, and, and I said this in my opening and in my closing is, whatever blame you may have for the employer, they're not a party to this case. They don't have a defense lawyer defending them. I'm not defending them, I'm not representing them. They are not on the verdict sheet. Their liability, their responsibility is for someone else in another day to determine. Your only issue for this jury to determine is whether the product was safe. And, and that's how we try and remove that from the equation. And now the defense has to essentially prove that the employer is solely at fault in order for the employer's negligence to prevent a recovery. Okay. Otherwise, there's no allocation. There's no reduction of liability on the defendant. But it, but it is a problem we deal with all the time. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. 
Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644, or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. We, we also uh, talked about this before on some other shows, but uh, I mean, two, two things I was thinking about is one, there must not be any statute of repose in Pennsylvania, uh, or, or at least I mean, for such an old product. And then two, I, I saw that under your, um, whether or not the product was defective uh, test, you actually were able to present two different theories to the jury. One is the consumer expectation test, which is, you know, what does the consumer expect? And then the other, the risk utility analysis. Um, like for instance, in Georgia, we don't have a consumer expectation test. We have risk utility analysis, but we wouldn't even get to that in the, um, because we have the statute of repose. So that gives us, uh, there is no strict liability claim. You do have a negligent design claim at a heightened standard, clear and convincing evidence. And then you still have your failure to warn claim, which does sound very similar to Pennsylvania actually. But, um, but talk about all those different theories and how you go about presenting that to the jury. Yeah, we, we have a statute of repose in Pennsylvania, but it's only for fixtures. So, and I've dealt with this, with some other similar products that are big enough that the defense will argue it's a fixture uh, and that would in turn prevent recovery. And that was not a, made an issue in this particular case. I don't believe it was bolted to the floor or anything, but um, that, that can be an issue. And as to the, the strict liability theories, we had a, a seismic shift in the law in 2014 in Pennsylvania. Our Supreme Court decided a case called Tincture the Omega Flex which evaluated whether it was going to adopt the restatement third of torts without getting too into the weeds of the law. It's not really that favorable in a lot of ways for plaintiff's lawyers. Um, And the court rejected that and allowed the plaintiffs to prevail if they establish either or both uh, liability under a consumer expectation and the risk utility. And this was one of the first cases that, that we tried after that tincture decision and the state of the law in Pennsylvania is still very unclear on a lot of these corollary issues, uh, but this was this was a test to try because of the, the recent changes in the law. Yeah, well, and, and I mentioned this kind of in talking about the case, but one of the reasons that we know the, that the jurors had agreed with you basically on all your theories of liability is because they were specifically asked uh, to make those findings on the verdict form. Was that uh, you know, in other words, for our listeners who haven't seen it, you know, they were they were required to make a finding about the consumer expectations, about risk utility, about the post-sale duty to warn versus just saying, you know, do you find that um, do you find for the plaintiff or for the defense? Um, is that was that verdict form? Was that fairly typical for Philadelphia County or was that something that was sort of designed to address these changes in the law? It's, it's fairly typical. We had 13 questions on this verdict sheet. It was very confusing for the lawyers to get through, let alone a jury. But typically, we do have very detailed, specific interrogatories for the jury. And because we had four claims in this case, uh, the more, in this particular case, not always, the, the more questions, the better for us because it gave us more chances to win. However, there are some cases that we've tried where there may be seven or eight questions before you get to damages. And the way it's worded is we have to win on every single question in order to get a verdict. In this case, we had a couple of different ways to get to the damages question, but it is typical to have a lot of different questions. Gotcha. 
Yeah. I mean, it was not, I imagine, I mean, you could see where the jury kind of marked some stuff out where they got maybe a little confused. Um, but as far as how they ultimately filled it out, you can't ask for, uh, <laughs> much better. You basically got a 100. <laughs> yeah, no. And a funny story about that is, and I'm kind of jumping to the end is after about two and a half hours of deliberations, the jury had a question about number question number three. So, you know, we redefined the definition of consumer expectation test to them and they went back in their deliberations and I kid you not, 20 minutes later, they have a verdict. So I was sure we lost the case. I told my client, I said, we lost. There's no way they got through the rest of the questions. There's no way they assessed your damages. I'm surprised because we thought the trial went well, but, you know, we have appellate rights. So just kind of stay composed. That's how confident I was. And then lo and behold, they come back 20 minutes later with $15 million verdict. And it just goes to show you that you can't really read too much into their questions or even the order that they, they answer these questions. Yeah, no, I, I, and we've said that before because, you know, what, what you don't know about what goes on in the jury room is, you know, here in Georgia, we have 12. I don't know if you have 12 in, in Pennsylvania, but um, you know, it, that could be one juror who just really wants to know the answer to that question and says, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a number until, until you answer that question for yeah. me. So let's go ask the judge, you know, and that yeah. could be it, you know? And so you, it, it has, it really has no bearing on whether or not, you know, everybody's thinking that way. Yes. You, yeah. You're just sitting there waiting for them to deliberate. You have nothing else to do, but debate with your partners what right. the meaning of that question is. <laughs> oh, it's so. torture. I mean, it takes me right back to reading into the questions or even worse, reading into how much time has gone by. Like if they come back too fast, but now is it taking too long? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. It takes me right back. <laughs> the worst part. Yeah. Well, um, so we touched on this earlier about the credibility of your client owning what really happened and that that really allowed you to to draw a sharp contrast to what was happening with the defense in your case. Um, and in particular, this issue of when this product was sold in 1983, whether it had these, these um, is it roll bars or roll guard? Roll guard. Roll guard on it. Um, and And can you talk a little bit about kind of what your evidence was in that case, both the sort of contemporaneous evidence that you had and then how that testimony was kind of developing and changing as the case went on and in uh, a trial. And, and let me just add to this a little bit, because, you, you know, to read the two openings, you know, you basically came out and said, you know, in 1983, when it sold, it was sold without a roll guard on it. And, you know, and so I'm sitting there thinking, OK, there's no roll guard. And then the defense lawyer comes out in his opening. He's like, there was a roll guard on it. So it was almost like, well, how, how could they be so, you know, diametrically opposed? There's got to be evidence one way or the other. And then, but talk about some of the evidence you had. Yeah, you would think it would be pretty clear for us lawyers to figure that out. And I wasn't sure how this was going to play out. And we focus grouped this specific issue because I did not want to lose credibility. And I, I said in my opening, um, there's going to be evidence on both sides. I said that our burn of proof is, is it more likely than not? And the evidence is going to show you it is more likely than not. But I'm going to be honest with you. There's some evidence to indicate the guard was on there. And in discovery, uh, the defendant Cincinnati, they produced about 1,200 documents. And I'm going through those documents, getting ready for the deposition of their safety director. And I see this email that he had written uh, shortly after my client was hurt in response to a call from my client's employer asking how the machine could be better guarded. 
The safety director researched it and he wrote an email to his sales guy. And the email was, the subject was sheer guards. And it said, it looks like we started putting them on there in 1984, a year after this was sold. So I get this email and this is the smoking gun, right? I, I race into my partner's office who tried the case with me, Jim Galco. He handled all the damages, witnesses, did a fantastic job. So I race into his office and I say, we got them. This is this proves conclusively. And then I go back to my desk. I'm going through more records. And then I see a parts list that is specific to this machine. It's not a generic one. It's got the serial number on there. It's a couple hundred pages long. Every screw, every bolt is listed on this parts list. Lo and behold, unfortunately for me, the roll guards are listed on the parts list. So now I have this contradiction. And then there was also a brochure, a marketing advertisement that Cincinnati had produced from the 80s that featured this specific shear in the marketing advertisement. It had a picture of it. And we know because it had the guy that originally bought it in the picture with his big smile in front of his, on his face, standing in front of this machine. So you could, wow. you could connect that brochure to this particular shear, believe it or not. And you could see the guard was on, the roll guards were on there in that picture. So I, at the deposition, I presented the email to the witness. I said, this email says that the guards were added a year later. He said to me, he said, yeah, I was wrong when I wrote that email. I looked up the wrong parts. So the roll guard was definitely on there prior to 1983 when we sold it. I was just wrong when I wrote that email. And that was a, that was, to me, that was a plausible excuse because I had the parts list and I had this brochure that seemed to show it was on there. So, and that's, that's why we did a focus group on this specific issue. And we presented all of this to the focus group and, um, they, they were pretty persuaded by the email. They, they, they weren't a thousand percent, but they gave me enough confidence that I could go to the jury with this theory that the email is correct without being laughed at. Yeah. <laughs> um, I still right. had backup theories, but I wanted to be sure on that point. Gotcha. So that's, so that's, I mean, that's interesting. Interesting. So when you would focus group this issue, was it was it in connection with all the other things that you needed to sort of um, address or did you really devote some time specifically to, to this issue? It was just this one issue, except for the fact that we had our client there and we had him, it was one of those things. Well, while we're here, while we have 15 or so people doing a focus group, what do you guys think this case is worth? And we had him, you know, briefly explain his injuries. We had his sister there. She kind of reiterated, but we wanted people to see his hand because at first blush, there's nothing special or unique about this case that would ever lead us to believe it would be the subject of a podcast. It was a garden variety, product liability, a tip of finger amputation that a lot of times we wouldn't even take. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot more to it than that. It was basically a complete hand injury. And we wanted the jury to assess that. And I was really pleasantly surprised by their assessment that they, this was a multiple seven figure injury case. So although the primary issue was the focus group, that specific issue, we got a lot of valuable feedback on damages as well. Well, um, you know, on, on this issue, I, I mean, I, I think I'm right. I, I, but when you, when the actual incident happened, I mean, there was no roll guard on it at that point. I mean, that, that was clear, right? Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I, I should have mentioned that there's no question that when, when his employer bought this machine about 10 years earlier on the used market, there was no roll guard on there and there never was. And they had no idea it was missing 
because it had that awareness barrier on there, which looks like a guard, but it's not a guard. And they just assumed that was the guard. It wasn't until after this accident when they called Cincinnati and said, hey, someone else besides my client actually got hurt right after he did. And that's what prompted you know, the boss, the general manager to call Cincinnati and ask if there was a way to better guard this machine. And then they discovered, whoa, there's roll guards that are supposed to be on here. And they ordered, I think it was 1500 bucks. They ordered the replacement roll guards to be put onto that machine. Right. And so, uh, and you made a, 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 a couple of really good points about that in your closing. One is that, you know, there is no reason to remove the roll guard. Like it wouldn't affect the, it wouldn't make the machine cut better. It wouldn't make it more efficient. It wouldn't, I mean, there's just no reason for it. And, and, the, and their experts had said that. Um, but then, then also you, you had this issue of when um, aggregates, I think, bought the machine, they register it with uh, Cincinnati. And in, and in the safety director, sends them this letter that says, you, you know, your machine was in, from 1983. It may not meet all safety standards. And then I, I thought you just made it, you know, this is the kind of thing that juries just don't like, where he tells them about all these different safety things he could do, but but it all costs money. And he, he's basically trying to upsell them on things they need to do to make sure that they have a machine that meets the safety standards. Yeah. And yeah. before before you answer that, just I glossed over this and meant to touch on it in the when when we got started. So the, the equipment's originally manufactured in 1983, looks like around uh, 2006, another a company buys it from the original purchaser, kind of fixes it up and makes it look nice and then sells it to aggregate equipment in in 2006 or seven. Something. Yes. Like, somewhere around there. Yeah. OK, sorry. Go. Ahead. Yeah, that's right. And then as soon as they buy it from this third-party company, they register it. And Cincinnati then becomes immediately aware, given the serial number, of the age of this machine. And that's what prompts the safety director to send out this alert, which, and we use the words upsell a lot during the trial, because that's what it was. It was not a safety alert. They were trying to sell additional parts. And, And one of the items that they had offered to sell was a VHS safety tape. And for the low, low price of, (laughs) yes, I, I wanted to sort of use like a theory of relativity to make the price that they were charging for this 30 minute VHS tape seem just crazy. And I, and I started by saying, you used to be able to buy old movies at target in a basket for three bucks, or you can rent them for 1995. So let's, let's look at how much they were going to charge for this 30 minute VHS tape. $20. No, $30. No, $50. No. $90, no. $100, that's still not enough. They were charging $125 for this tape. And I think it's more effective to kind of use it, that sort of format, rather than just saying this was $125 tape. And I could see the jury while I'm going through this in my opening, just like shaking their heads in in amazement, like, well, why would they do that? And then on cross-examination of Scott Whittington, the safety director, he he flippantly says to me, well, it wasn't just the VHS tape. It also came with a case. And I said, okay, so was it, was it gold-plated? That's what I said. Was it a gold-plated case? And, you know, he just kind of shied away from that. Yeah. I thought that was so effective, um, you sort of pointing that out in ter- in terms of, you know, they they figure out that this old equipment is out there and is being used by somebody. And they basically send this this letter selling stuff, selling the $125 VHS tape, selling, I mean, I think they eventually do sell 
and, and aggregates buys all the, you know, stickers, warning stickers cost money, all this stuff costs money. But I'm wondering if it was so effective for you in describing that letter as basically a letter that was just seemed designed to, to sell something. And I'm wondering if that's something that jumped out to you from this letter in this specific case, or is it sort of a theme that comes up when you handle cases like this? Yeah, we've seen this a few times in our cases that it's always helpful to have some acknowledgement by the manufacturer that they are, even after the date of sale, they're aware that this machine is still being used. In Pennsylvania, we have a post-sale duty to warn. It's a very favorable uh, provision of our tort law, which says even if the product is safe at the time that you manufacture it, if it essentially becomes defective over time and the manufacturer can trace it, most consumer products really can't be traced. But if it's one like this, where it can be traced with the serial number, the manufacturer has a duty to, I use the theme, speak up loudly and clearly. That was kind of the theme that we used in depositions and at trial. It's, they have an obligation to speak up loudly and clearly. And they knew that because they did attempt, they sent this letter to sell additional parts, including stickers for $10 and tapes for $125. And at that same time, they had in their possession a brochure or a, an advisement on how to purchase and install these roll guards for the older machines. It's a, it's a retrofit kit. And they never even sent that to aggregates, the employer. They sent them the sheet trying to sell them stuff, but they never sent them the notification saying, hey, a lot of the older machines don't have these roll guards. It had a big picture of it right on the, right on the sheet. For some reason in 2007, they never sent that more important flyer to aggregates, just the, the checklist to buy things. And then, and then talk real quick uh, about when the safety director came to trial, he changed his testimony. Instead of saying that he was referring to roll guards, he meant uh, ball socket guards or something yes. like that? So at his deposition, he said when he wrote that email stating that the guards were added after the fact that he was wrong, that he was referring to the the roll guards, but he was just simply wrong. He looked up the wrong parts. He realized he had a problem if he stuck to that story, because if he was under that mistaken impression when he testified, then he would have been under that mistaken impression in 2007 when he sent that letter. So he would have mistakenly believed in 2007 that this machine did not have roll guards and never made any effort to alert aggregates. So he realized that was a dilemma. So at trial, he did a 180 degree pivot. And he said, I was not mistaken when I sent that email. I, I was wrong at my depth. I, he said, what I did is I was referring to different guards entirely. These ball socket guards on the sides of the machine have nothing to do with this case. So those are the guards that I was referring to. And I just kind of scratched my head and said, well, you wrote this email in response specifically to my client's accident and a right. second accident. <laughs> Why would you possibly refer to different guards? That would just make no sense. And he said, he said, I was just, I was mistaken at my deposition when I said otherwise. And I said to him, and I have that, that testimony because it was just, it was amazing to me that he would, he would say that. I said, I assume when you were deposed, you knew you would be asked about the email. And his answer was, there are 1200 documents I thought I would be asked about. I did my best. And I said, well, did you know you were going to be asked about the email at your deposition? 
this is the most important document in the case. Mm -hmm. And he says, absolutely not. It absolutely did not occur to me that that email would be the subject of any questions. Otherwise, I would have remembered. I apologize for that. (laughs) So there's just no way. And you can see the jury roll in their eyes. He was caught in this dilemma and he's got two completely different answers for me. And that's another reason I think that kind of aggravated the jury, which increased the size of the verdict. No, no question in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, and it, you know, and the other part of that is, is this isn't just the average Joe Schmo, you know, I mean, this is a guy who knows these machines, you know, probably designed them and then is the safety director of this company. I mean, he's not going to make a mistake between, especially when somebody just gets their hand crushed talking about a different guard. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So speaking of this, of of one of the themes was was that, you know, they needed to speak up and communicate loudly and clearly. One of the things that I thought was really, you know, persuasive, just sort of reading some of your materials, obviously, and not being there at trial was the fact that this Cincinnati technician had come in in 2009 and had actually, you know, worked for Cincinnati and had inspected this machinery Um and didn't raise these issues, um, the issues of either the foot pedal being modified or, um, you know, the guard not being there. And so I'm wondering, you know, both, both how that played out at trial with the jury and also whether you focus grouped anything related to that, because that was something I found to be very persuasive, almost sort of like, who cares about what happened in 1983 or before if this happened and this guy you know, was there for four hours or billed for four hours and didn't right. even bring the, these issues up. Right. And, and I'll just add before Dan answers is that, that issue of four hours it, to me was just so important because it's not like a guy just looked at this for, you know, 10 minutes and walked away. I mean, he was there for four hours. I mean, you're going to notice these. Things. Well, that doesn't include travel time, Steve. Right. That's right. It, yes. it did say right. that. Yeah, no, no travel. And he was coming from way far away. Yes. Yeah. So that that was an independent theory we had is that it doesn't matter if it had the guard on it originally when it was sold. There's no dispute that it wasn't on there in 2009 when Cincinnati's technician in his Cincinnati jacket and Cincinnati shirt went out to this facility and worked on this uh, shear for four hours and, and dinged him for seven hundred and twenty dollars. Didn't fix a thing. And I think it's little little points like that that aggravate the jury too. He, he didn't even fix it while he was there. And he on the on the sheet that he filled out, he checked off the box that said, are the warnings present? And most of the warnings were on the front of the machine, right where the guard, the roll guards should have been. So if you can see that the warnings are present, then necessarily we're looking at the front of the machine and you should have noticed that the, the roll guards were gone. And then he should have spoke up loudly and clearly especially since Cincinnati knows that they used to sell this machine for years without the roll guards. So this is not something that can be easily missed. They know, hey, while you're there, check and make sure the roll guards are on there. This is an older machine. Make sure it wasn't one of the originals that you sold. None of that happened. They didn't, they didn't make any effort to, to check on the safety of the machine. They built for their four hours and then they went home. And so at trial, what, what they tried to do is they tried to spin this and say, There's no evidence that this technician who passed away before we could depose him, there's no evidence that this technician ever saw the front of the machine, which is just silly because you can't can't miss it. When you walk into this plant, you have to see the front of it. He went around and worked on the back of the machine. And when he checked off on the box, are all warnings present? 
he might have just been referring to the warnings on the back, which makes no sense. Why would you permit that type of cavalier attitude towards safety? And I made that point in my close that can you imagine Cincinnati condoning it's okay for a technician to check off that all warnings are in place as long as they see any warning in place? Of course, this gentleman saw the front of the machine and checked off that the warnings were in place and never never said a word because if he did, it would have been recorded on his on his paperwork. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that idea, I know for me as as a um as a recent new homeowner, as I think I've mentioned on the podcast several times, this is my first house. I related to that immediately as like if I had somebody, a repairman or somebody come out and look at something that was complicated enough that I can't fix, you know, like my, I don't know, my furnace or for me, basically anything in my house. But if I had them come out and they filled out this form that, yeah, oh, everything looks good. But I meant, oh, everything looks good in this one area that I looked at. But, you know, I only looked at the back of your refrigerator and not the front of your refrigerator (laughs) or the front of your refrigerator and not the back of your, whatever. Um, I just think as a, as a, even though we're talking about more complicated machinery and and the workplace, I still feel like that resonates with the jury. It just pisses them off. It it pisses me off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and we actually had an interrogatory asking what inspections, if any, Cincinnati did on the product. And this is a standard form interrogatory that we ask in all our product liability cases. We never expect to get anything really useful. And Rarely do you ever think that answers to interrogatories are going to be that helpful at trial, but surprisingly, they are. If you really take your time and you craft detailed, specific interrogatories, you can get good information because the defendants are not always game planning six, seven weeks ahead or playing chess necessarily. They just answer as best they can. And turns out it's a harmful admission. So in their in their sworn answers to interrogatories signed by the same gentleman that's the safety director that was there at trial that I cross-examined. It says the the shear would have been inspected within the course and scope of the service visit. So I used that against them. And they said they tried to back out of that and say, all we meant was that the shear area where we were working would have been inspected during the course of the service, not the entire shear, which, again, I can see I can see eyes roll Mm -hmm. uh, while, while they're trying to back out of that. Um, and I asked you um, earlier, but I can't remember if if you answered this. Did you was was this whole idea of what should have been done in this inspection or how believable it was? Was that something that you specifically focus grouped or was it something that was kind of like a backup theory that you let play out how it played out? Yeah, I, I don't believe we focus grouped that. It was more of just a backup backup claim. We had some legal instability related to that claim. And in fact, in the post trial motion, the judge granted JNOV on that particular claim didn't matter to us because we had three others that survived. Right. But we did have to show under the law that the employer had relied upon the service technician's advice during that visit. And the testimony just really didn't support that. Gotcha. Um, but it allowed us at least to get in the evidence the jury found in our favor. And the judge rightly uh, granted JNOV at the end of the case on that particular claim. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Um, well, I want, I want to make sure we talk about damages, but before I go there, Steve, did you have, well, I was just, I have a note written down and I'm trying to remember there was, there is an issue about what warnings were on the machine. Right. And then I thought I saw something about an affidavit that 
was notarized in the wrong state or something. Oh like yeah, that. I meant to ask yeah. about that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we didn't really have a strong warnings claim. It appeared that all of the warnings on the front of the machine had been worn off, and there was some issue of whether the employer, you know, should be responsible for replacing them. We didn't really have or pursue a strong warnings claim necessarily. Um, with regard to the affidavit, one of the fascinating aspects of this case, and this this definitely drove damages probably more than anything else, is the defense called an expert named Peter Schwalge. He's a, an engineer who addressed the design of the guard, because we had alleged even if the guard was on the machine, the design wasn't adequate. That was sort of a backup to our first theory that there was no guard at all. But this was just a small part of our case. It was it was five, as it turns out, it was 5% of our case was this design defect of the guard. It's the role guards, et cetera. So they call this engineer. And after I get his report before the trial, I do some research on him. I find another case where he testified and the opposing party alleged that he falsified his credentials in several ways. And they attached as exhibits proof to that. And I had all of this, it was a gold mine of information. So I'm sitting there at trial and I, I tell my partner, Jim, there's just no way he's gonna make these same exaggerated claims about his credentials. It's not even really reason to, he's qualified and this is a minor issue. So I'm saying that he's probably aware that he's been called out already. He's not gonna go down this road. He's gonna be more straight. And then to my surprise, he goes through and exaggerates his credentials again. And he said he worked for this company, PSE&G. And he said he taught at Pratt for three years, five different classes. And he said he had a specialized degree in industrial engineering, which just so happened to perfectly fit this case, which was an industrial accident case. Right. So I had all kinds of document proving none of that was true. And I crossed him on his qualifications called Vardir before we even get to the substance of his opinions. And I kind of toy around. I say, you say you worked at PSE&G. How did you like that? Were the people there nice? Why did you leave? I went through all these innocent questions. And then I put up on our giant 12 foot by 12 foot screen, this letter that I had gotten from PSE&G. I didn't get it, but I found it saying that no one by his name or social security number has ever worked for that company. <laughs> and then I went through the, th the same thing with Pratt. I had a letter from Pratt saying he he taught not three years, but three semesters and only two classes. And then I had a letter from his undergraduate saying he just had a generic degree in account and uh, in engineering, nothing about industrial engineering. So I went through all of that probably over 30 minutes because he was fighting me, even though it was in black and white. And I, I normally will our dear an expert for what, three, four minutes. And this is right. 30, 40 minutes. I have this guy on the stand. Oh my so it's all over. I think we're done. He, he barks out to the defense lawyer, go in the back of the courtroom and get my briefcase. There's a manila folder in there. So the, the judge says, whoa, 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 stop, stop. This is in front of the jury. The judge excuses the jury. We get this mysterious manila folder in it. And in there, he's got a copy of his diploma. What expert brings a diploma to court? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he's got a pay stub from PSE&G purportedly. And then he has an affidavit from the former dean at Pratt who's about 90 years old and hadn't been the dean for decades, that purports to describe in great detail each and every class this expert taught, when he taught there, that he taught there for three years, and the expert was down in Florida. You could see that because of the fax number. And the, or the, the professor, the dean was in Florida, I'm sorry. Yeah. And the expert is in New Jersey. 
and it's notarized by a New Jersey notary. So there's no way it was notarized in person, obviously. So we go back, bring the jury back and they show the jury all of these things that he had in his briefcase to try and rehabilitate him. And then I just kind of point out like this affidavit makes no sense. There's no way this Dean would remember decades later these details. I said, what happened is you drafted this affidavit. It, it doesn't even have an affirmation that you're, you're signing it under penalty of perjury. It says affidavit, but that's it. Other than that, it's just a statement. Um, there's no consequences. So I said, you drafted this affidavit. You provided all the details from your house in New Jersey. You faxed to him in Florida and you called him up and you said, I'm in a jam. I need you to sign this. And I asked, that was my question. I didn't even care what his answer was, but he answered me by saying, that's outrageous. I'm not even going to dignify that with an answer, <laughs> but we all knew it's what happened. Right. And that was a big, when I crossed them on the substance, it was maybe 10 minutes. It didn't even matter at that point. Yeah. 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 I oh, mean, man. and that's the kind of thing that juries will latch onto. I mean, once they find that you lie about basic facts like that, then you can't trust anything they say. Yeah. Well, that's and right. that's the exciting stuff too, when they see that stuff, right? That's the stuff that reminds them of stuff that they see on trials on TV or, or legal stuff on TV, you know, like they latch onto that sort of anything that seems, you know, sort of exciting or dramatic. Yeah. You have, you have to make it interesting. You have to keep it interesting. These are things that I learned from going to seminars and, you know, watching the great trial lawyers like Mark Lanier do these presentations where he references TV shows. And, and these are, multi-billion dollar cases that he's right. trying and he's talking about uh csi and and housewives and things you have to you have to keep it interesting to get the jury's uh, attention no there's there's no doubt and juries expect it now yeah yeah, yeah. all right yvonne this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning and i don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial we always have bob or Liz, or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta dot com legal technology services uh, give them a try 
I want to make sure we talk about damages because one of the things you said, Dan, a little while ago was that you might look at this case or these injuries on paper and it that you might feel like the damages aren't aren't there to litigate a case like this. Um, but then you quickly realize that this that this injury was different and that this this client was different and that this case was different. Can you talk a little bit? Um, be, there's so much interesting stuff to talk about liability wise that I that even when I was introducing the case, I didn't talk a lot about Mr. Reyes, who seemed like a really, you know, kind of hardworking, special person. So can you talk a little bit about about him and what this injury was actually like for him? Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's the most important fact in the case is the likability of the plaintiff. And the jury would not have given him one million dollars or one hundred thousand dollars, let alone 15 million, unless they really, really liked him. He was 42 years old, fourth grade education, started off at this job, pushing the broom. His brother worked there and his goal was to be a welder or a painter. And he was working towards that. It was the first time in his life at age 42, he was ever completely emancipated. He had just got his own apartment. He had his own car. The skies were clear. And then this happened. And the next thing you know, he's living in his sister's basement. So it's a compelling story from that standpoint. And when when the clamps crushed down on his finger, he reflexively pulled his hand out like touching a hot stove. And when he did that, he caused permanent damage to the median nerve, which runs up from the wrist through the middle of the hand to the tip of the finger. And the median nerve has no elasticity at all. So when he yanked his hand out in that split second, he caused permanent damage to that nerve, which rendered his hand 60% useless or so. That's what the doctors were saying. And then in addition to that, he was suffering from constant tremors. And he sat closest, to, he sat next to me, but closer, closer to the jury. And the jury could see his hand trembling the entire time for, for five days. They were sit, sitting there witnessing. He was not making this up as the defense doctor claimed. This was, this was, a, it was a really bad injury from that standpoint. And I think the defense may have over under underestimated that and just view this as a amputated tip of finger case and not a loss of use of hand dominant hand case to a to a really great guy. Yeah, well, and, and, and you really made the link between, you know, in, in addition to just sort of the, the, the permanent nature of the injury and the sort of embarrassment that he might feel about how it looks or how his hand is moving, that it was also meant he couldn't pursue these things that he wanted to do anymore. He couldn't be a welder or I guess a painter with that limited amount of function in his dominant hand. Yeah, he was, he ended up when he did get back to work, he was working at a gas station and then he worked at a Napa auto store. So to his credit, he, he did try to work, but he just, he was never going to be able to do the things he liked, nor would he be able to engage in his hobbies. One of them was playing the guitar. He liked to draw. Uh, when, when we try cases like this, the big cases, what we do in my office is my partner, Jim Galco, he handles all of the damages for me. It was my case. Originally I, I litigated it once I realized the focus group had a big valuation and we got near trial. I gave everything to Jim to do. So he, Jim met personally with the doctors weeks before they, they testify, not 30 minutes before we put them on the stand. He had them fully prepared. They were, they, they didn't have to read from reports. They could talk to the jury and explain it to the jury. So Jim was in charge of kind of marshalling all of this evidence and he gets all the credit for the size of the verdict. I may get a little bit of credit for winning the case, but in terms of the dollar value, Jim, presented a, a fantastic case 
And the defense, they did call uh, a medical doctor of their own um, named uh, Stanley Askin. He's an orthopedic doctor. So this kind of went along perfectly with the rest of our theory with all of these witnesses hiding information is they call Stanley Askin. He talks to the jury on his qualifications that he's a medical doctor. He did his residency here and his intern there. And he's doing this many operations. And Jim gets up and says, you left something out and re with regard to your background, didn't you? And the doctor says, well, what are you talking about? He said, you have a law degree. And the doctor's like, well, yeah, I have a law degree, but I'm not here as a lawyer. I'm here as a medical doctor. So I didn't feel the need to disclose that. And Jim kind of said, don't you think that was important for the jury to know? To know? Our client said he, he felt like he was interrogated when you examined him and you being a lawyer, that would make sense. And then Jim said, not only do you have a law degree, you have a law practice. You actively practice law in addition to medicine. He said, yeah, I do do that. And then he said, and not only do you do that, you donate to and you're part of an organization that promotes tort reform. And he said, yeah, yeah I do. And Jim says, in tort reform, what that means is you're in favor of limiting the ability of accident victims to recover fair compensation. And no, no doctor's ever going to agree that that's the definition of tort reform, but that is. And that's what Jim right. let the jury know. And yeah. Again, it played into our, our theme of why are Cincinnati, why are they paying thousands of dollars for all of these experts to come in and put on a show? Like if, if you're a lawyer, just get it out in the open. And right. the best part about this cross-examination of Dr. Askin is Jim had cross-examined this doctor a couple of years earlier in another case and went through this whole same cross-examination. So you would think the second time around, the doctor would say, Jim Galco knows I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm not going to omit that from the jury because he's going to bring it out. Why don't we just get that out on the table? But no, he didn't. He went through the whole thing and didn't. I guess he had forgotten, but it was another very important point of the trial. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's like we say, I mean, you know, you, you've mentioned this several times, but, you know, credibility is the most important thing at trial and, you know, on either side. But once you've lost it, you can't get it back. And um, and juries punish you know, people who, um, who aren't credible who, and, and are trying to mislead them. Yeah. Especially as a plaintiff's lawyer and a plaintiff, I tell my clients, when we walk into the courtroom, the, the deck is stacked against us because of the lobbying that goes on. They think that we're all looking to win the lottery here. So if we are incorrect, even accidentally about anything, we're, we'll never get our credibility back. The case is over. It's, and that's the, the most important part about being the plaintiff's lawyer in, in one of these cases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, speaking of of credibility and of the, and of the damages, um, you know, I, I mentioned this when I was talking about the case. I can't remember if I talked about amounts, but you, you know, you told the jury that you basically had forty five thousand dollars in medical expenses and thirty nine thousand dollars in lost wages. And I'm wondering, a lot of times on this show, um, we hear different sort of opinions or approaches from people about whether to bring up those amounts or whether they worry they're going to be anchors. Um, and, you know, you really considering that, you know, that that number was under a hundred thousand dollars and you got a $15 million award. I'm wondering if you can talk about that, both whether, whether you considered keeping that stuff out or whether you were worried about that being an anchor um, and how you got the jury to where they needed to be. Yeah, we debated that a lot um, as to it, because we're very concerned about that being an anchor. Um, and then in the end, and I'm not sure we would make the same decision again. It was just a case by case determination. In the end, we, we put that evidence in 
And I use the analogy that we use frequently in closing that those medicals are just the tip of the iceberg. And as to his non-economic or his pain and suffering damages, uh, and just hope that the jury does the right thing. In this case, there was only one line and you'd asked about the verdict sheet before. And a lot of the cases, there's a couple of lines, at least how much do you award for medical bills? And then how much do you award for pain and suffering or wage loss here? It was just one line. So it, you know, that's definitely was a concern of ours. However, I don't remember exactly why, but we just decided to put that evidence into the case. It worked out. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, sometimes the jury might wonder if they're really sophisticated, why are there no medical bills being submitted? Maybe there's workers' comp insurance and he got hurt at work, so they're paying for everything and maybe we shouldn't give him anything. Maybe that was part of our, our reasoning. It's, it's tough. It's a tough decision to make. Right. I, I had another case in a, in a very, very conservative venue. Philadelphia's a, a good venue to be. I was in the middle of Pennsylvania on a case with a life care plan of $15 million. And we had the opposite concern in that case. Like, should we actually present that figure to the jury? Because it's so high that it might prevent us from getting a favorable verdict. And that was kind of the, the converse in, in, in that case. Yeah. 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 You, you know, one thing that I, I didn't, we, we've touched on, but I just wanted to talk about it a little more, especially for some of our uh, younger lawyer listeners, but when you're taking on a case where you've got a product that's, uh, that's so old, talk about how, I mean, my guess would be some of your discovery in the case would be that they just don't have any documents about it anymore because, you know, they, they've mm -hmm. destroyed it pursuant to their, their policy, their retention policy. Talk about how you conduct discovery and, and, you know, get to the bottom of what happens on a case where you've got a product that's, you know, 30 years old, you know, at the time that this happens and more than 30 years old at the time of trial. Yeah, we, we see that a lot, unfortunately. And that's a, and that's a real hardship in a lot of cases. In this case, Cincinnati, they, they had maintained all of their records. They had, uh, there was nothing that we were looking for that they didn't have. They, they had the original parts um, list, which was hundreds of pages. They had a packing list. They had the original uh, product ID tag. So in this case, we, we kind of got lucky, I guess, in, in that sense, in that they provided us with 1,200 documents. We had the design drawings with dates. We know when changes were made. That kind of played into the issue of whether the guard was on there or not, because there were design drawings right around the time of sale that had the, the guards being sort of designed for the first time. Um, but in a lot of our other cases, that is, that is a problem. And you know the best we can do really is just try and request even informally an adverse inference from the jury that why do they not have these records that we're looking for? A responsible company will keep these records and right. it's only been X years and they don't have them. So it can hamper us in a lot of ways. In this case, it really wasn't a factor. Yeah. Okay. The, the other thing I want to know when we always ask everybody, did you get a chance to talk to your jurors afterward and, and find out what uh, hit home with them or what didn't? Yeah, unfortunately not. I would have loved to. What, it, it's kind of a, a judge by judge decision in Pennsylvania, whether you can talk to the jurors. I, 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 I usually, not always, I always like to. In this case, the judge said, he said, the lawyers can go to the back of the room. And as the jury filters out, you can talk to the lawyers if you want. So they all kind of walked out right past us and they shook our hands and they said, you know, congratulations or what, but they did not get into any substance at all. And they seemed to just be ready to leave. So we right. didn't really interrogate them and nor did I want to upset the judge by following them in the, in the hallway. 
Yeah, yeah. it's all it's always hard to you know what you know uh, when you're talking to jurors afterwards yeah. with you know because a lot of judges will say, well, I don't want you you know approaching them, but if they come to you, I'm not going to stop them from you know asking you questions. Type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I would have liked to to get more details from them. Yeah, I feel like I'm always so exhausted at that point that I never, even when I get the opportunity, I feel like I don't make the most of it. I'm just like so tired <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that I'm yeah. just like, I can't inter interact with people right now, but it's such a good opportunity when you can get it. Yeah. Especially when you, except when you lose and then you just have to force yourself or I'll have one of the associates that's helping us with the file, <laughs> figure out what went wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. tough at that point <laughs> yeah. to, to talk to them, but it's good to. Yeah, but I, I actually had that experience once where I had one judge who she liked to take the um, the the lawyers back to the jury room after the verdict to come out and give the jurors a chance to ask questions, give the lawyers a chance, you know, just you really wanted yeah. everybody. And I had lost that case. And so I was like, <laughs> I was kind of like, well, you know, what did you think about our evidence? And, and they did they, and it, 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 against the defendant in that case. They said, you know, you guys really need to change your policies, you know, because you're doing things wrong. We just you know, couldn't get there as a jury. And I was like, uh, you uh, know. Oh, stuck in that room too. Yeah, like, are you back exactly. there in the jury room? Oh. Especially with the smug defense lawyer standing next to me, you know, oh, yeah. it's like, torture. I that's bet. torture. Yeah. Oh man. Well, that's all I got, Steve. You got, uh, no, this is, this has been really good, Dan. We've really appreciated your time. Is, is there anything else that, uh, you want to make sure our listeners know about this case that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Yeah, I, I would be remiss by not adding one point, sort of a postscript to what happened. Um, the defense filed a motion for post-trial relief, trying to get JNOV on, which essentially means a judgment entered in their favor, set aside the jury verdict on every possible grounds. And they raised 15 different evidentiary issues. Um, and we won on all of those, except the one claim got, got dismissed, which was no big deal. They also, of course, sought to get remittiture which is when the judge can on his or her own reduce the amount of the verdict, which is only supposed to happen in the most extreme cases. And the standard right. in Pennsylvania is the judge can reduce the verdict only if the amount is so shockingly high that it takes his or her breath away. That's, that's the way that the, <laughs> the cases have interpreted that. And in this case, after probably four or five months of, time for the parties to brief it and looking up every other case you could and, and really sort of hit it. That was the only issue we were concerned about, uh, sincerely. And um, the judge did cut the verdict in half. Okay. So it wasn't a shock. He could have, he could have reduced it to a million. He could have reduced it to 3 million. Would have been nice for him to reduce it to 12 million instead, but he did cut it in half to seven and a half million. But that, that basically made the case unassailable from an right. appellate standpoint, because the appeals court, they can't reduce it further. All they can do is direct the judge to reduce it. And then it's his or her discretion as to how much. So although it was disappointing to get it cut in half, it could have been, could have been far worse. And at that point, Cincinnati had their, their trove of appellate lawyers lined up to fight this you know, appeal and it, the case settled pretty quickly after that. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, he he probably did you a favor because, you know, I mean, now the appellate court's looking at this saying, well, this is the trial judge. He watched all the evidence. He was there with the jury. And and this is what he felt, he or she, sorry, uh, felt was correct. And so uh, it, it it is hard to overturn that at that point. Yeah, I think it was sort of a, a blessing in that way. And I just I say to 
to the colleagues that, that kid me about it. You're not a real trial lawyer until you've had a verdict remitted. And then, right. <laughs> then you have a badge of honor. I, I was just, I was, it's probably not an effective argument to say, well, judge, I watched you when the verdict came out and you didn't lose your breath. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe you, maybe you could add to your bio, bio though, like gets verdicts so high that they chop judges and take their breath away. I like that. I like, that's a great idea. Yeah. Check out my website tomorrow. It may be changed. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Let me remind everybody, we've been talking to Dan Hessel from uh, Galco Hessel in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and you can look him up at galcohessel.com. That's G-O-L-K-O-W-H-E-S-S-E-L.com. Dan, thank you so much for uh, for your time and for, uh, and for sharing with us. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Yvonne. I really appreciate it. This was a great time. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.